Welcome back, Intimates. I'm excited to find you experts to talk about love, connection, non-monogamy, polyamory, relationship anarchy, group sex, kink, commitment, and lots of other intimacy and relationship topics. Let's live our best lives together by unlearning stigma and getting clear on what we really want. Don't know what to ask for? I have loads of ideas for you. Of course, none of this would be possible without the support of my amazing Patreon supporters or my current hosts, the Musqueam First Nation on whose unceded lands this podcast was made and this human was born. If you want to support more intimate interactions, you can say thank you by supporting us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Patreon supporters also get every episode of the podcast ad-free with short intros and outros. I know funds are not an option for some of you lovely humans, but don't fret, there are other ways you can help out. You can help make more intimate interactions by just telling someone you listen to this podcast. Or if you're feeling especially generous, you can share a link to an episode you like and discuss it with a friend or partner, or even leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting site. Help other humans interested in more intimacy and better relationships find us. If you have your own podcast, shout us out. Need a podcast guest? Email offers to podcast at victorsalmon.com. I love talking about relationships and intimacy, and I love cross-promotion and working with other podcasters. Okay, let's hear about today's episode. Today, two POC folks discuss monogamy, polyamory, autonomy, and agency. Jet Noir shares a story of his parents and how they dealt with extramarital adventures. We chat about the types of non-monogamy we identify with. I go into relationship anarchy a little bit. I think it's going to be a great session. This is still from the long session that I recorded with Jet Noir while he was on day 27 of self-isolation during the COVID-19 pandemic. Enjoy. I guess I'll enter everyone to another session of Intimate Interactions here with Jet Noir. Jet is a friend of mine, specifically one who used to be a former fitness coach. Things I'm learning about you all the time. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about non-monogamy, because that's something near and dear to both of our hearts, I think. Would you say that it's near and dear to yours, Jet? Oh, very much so. Yeah. Um, so let's start talking about um, recovering from serial non or recovering from serial monogamy. Do you want to start to start with what serial monogamy is? Serial monogamy is that thing that, for me, I felt I was just supposed to do, where... You know, I would be involved, immersed, I should say, in a relationship, and and I would be immersed in that relationship because I felt like, oh, well, this person is the one, right? And and when things didn't work out, then I would go to another relationship like that, or you know, at least be seeking it until I found it. And so there, so serial in the sense that it was one after the other, and mm -hmm. and and monogamous in the sense that there were different definitions of cheating from one relationship to the next. Interesting. I often think of cheating as the idea that we're reneging on agreements or that we're not honoring our agreements. And I feel like that can happen in non-monogamy as well. It just looks different. Totally. And, and the way that I define cheating today in, in non-monogamy, uh, I'm, I'm actively dating like three or four people right now. And what I define as cheating is if I were to share an inside joke that I have with person A with person B, mm -hmm. you know, so, the, and you know what I mean by inside jokes, whether it's like, you know, a certain laugh that you may share with someone about a movie or something like that. Um, and that's not to say that you can't watch a movie with multiple partners, but more like, Oh, well, 
we took this thing and we turned it into this joke that we now, you know, make each other laugh about. I'm not going to share that with another partner. That feels that feels wrong to me. That's so interesting because I would be totally comfortable with that if I had like an inside joke with someone and they shared it with another partner. Um, I, I don't feel like that changes the specialness of our experience of the joke personally, but I also respect that like different folks in non-monogamy are going to have like different lines where they're like, this feels like sharing, like, like, um, becoming less special or, or oversharing specialness. Whereas for me, that, that doesn't hit on those things. Well, to, to be clear, I don't have a problem. I don't, I don't impose that rule on others. So, you know, if they do that, then I don't, I'm not upset, you know, but that, but it's just, it's just a thing for me that I won't do to them. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, so I'm curious to dig into that deeper. Like what specifically about sharing inside jokes feels like you're, you're doing someone wrong. Well, what I don't want to be is while I, I always want to authentically be myself. I don't want to just feel like I put myself on a loop, uh, when, when navigating multiple relationships and mm. an example would be back when I used to wait tables, you know, as, as you may or may not know, when, when you're a server, they give you like four or five tables near each other so that you can be efficient mm-hmm. in serving those four or five tables. And yep. that's your section. And in my section, uh, as I'm giving a spiel for the night right. about the specials or what I like on the menu or whatever, then it was a very real likelihood that the table next to them would hear me give the same spiel. So, <laughs> it's true, yeah. So I didn't want to give the exact same cookie cutter spiel from one table to the next and just be a robot throughout the night. I didn't want to do that. That didn't feel that did not feel authentic to me. And so right. it's kind of the same thing with my relationships. It's like uh I want to consider how this partner that I'm with here in this moment how they receive information, their style of communication, what they like, uh, as opposed to, you know, just always telling the same jokes and just, you know, putting yep. myself on repeat. Because it's, it's, ve- it's very real that in one day I can have in-depth conversations with three different people that I'm, I'm, I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. And, and in doing that, I don't want to just, you know, Oh, let me say the exact same shit <laughs> that I said, right. you know, a few hours ago. That just doesn't feel authentic to me. Yeah, I I feel that completely. That's um that's a really neat idea. I feel like I fall into different communication patterns with different people. But that is something I will give more thought to. Like if I hear tell the same joke twice, does that mean I'm not fully processed from a thing or does that mean maybe that I'm really, really, really enjoying telling that joke? Um, and like, to what extent does that frame my relationship in terms of like how I frame information rather than more of a, like how we exchange information? Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to give that more thought, but thank you for that. So something that I find curious is, um, everyone's different definition of the word partner and, you know, I, I think it's great that people have different definitions of what partner means, but I, I, I think that it's important for us to dive into what it means to other people 
you know, before we either accept them using the term towards us or before we start using the term towards them. Yeah. Uh, and, and where this comes from for me is I feel like a lot of polyamorous people here in the Bay Area, they have no concept of their of their own emotional bandwidth. And mm-hmm. so I'll hear people use the term partner for like seven different people. And I'm like, okay, how do you define partner? Because I just can't imagine when I think of partner, I think of building something together, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, whether we're talking about a house, a business, a family, uh, you know, a Scrabble game, whatever, building something together. And it's hard for me to believe that you're building something with seven different people. Yeah. That's a lot of people. You know what I mean? But again, that's my definition of partnership. So that's when I check and I'm like, okay, well, how do you define partner? Because I find it interesting that you're just kind of throwing this word around so liberally. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it goes back to something you and I've talked about before, which is uh, what I call the relationship default. Mm -hmm. And and it's, it's that thing where it's like, okay, we've been dating, we've been having sex, you know, uh, we're used to each other. Let's just start calling each other partner without having a conversation as to what partner means to both of us. Right. And, and I think that that's, that's, I think it's irresponsible when it comes to, you know, um, navigating a relationship. It's like, you should talk about what these terms mean instead of just assuming what they mean to the other person. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, it's so interesting because some of the sentiments you're echoing really remind me a lot of more relationship anarchy style non-monogamy. And I'm just really curious what flavor of polyamory you identify with personally. Uh, I tend to refer to myself as solo polyamorous. Got it. And, and, and I define that as, um, while yes, I can still have, you know, partners or marriages and things like that. It's not solo in the sense that I will be by myself forever. It's more to say that uh, I am in in control of my heart and my body, and I decide, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the rules for my heart and my body. No one else decides that. Yeah, it's very much like autonomy and agency as as primary values or as very important values. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I've heard some folks define solo polyamory as being their interested in quote unquote, whatever, but the big restriction is they don't want a domestic partnership with anyone. They want to live their live alone and have their own space. Even if they spend lots of time over at partners houses or if partners spend lots of time over at their houses, or if literally seven out of seven days, they're either sleeping at someone else's house or having someone else sleep at theirs. They like having their own space. So that's one definition I've heard. Um, but folks have, sort of sliced that bread many different styles. There are also folks that are like, I'm happy having someone live with me. I just can't have one primary partner. So solo polyamory, meaning they're never looking for a quote unquote nesting or primary partner, even if they have domestic partnerships. Yeah. And, and I'm so glad you uh, mentioned that, that term primary partner, because it's something I've never been fond of it. It's uh, and, and mm-hmm. I get it that it works for other people and, you know, more power to them. It's just not for me because I don't I don't like the idea of ranking people, right? Uh, and and so I'm not going to I, I'm I'm not going to say and I'm 
certainly not going I'm, I'm going to try my best not to think and I, and the reason I say try my best is because I'm still unlearning some habits from when I was a serial monogamist uh, I'm going to try my best not to think of the people that I'm dating as you are primary you are secondary you are tertiary and right. that's the thing I find interesting about use of the term primary partner is that mm-hmm. A lot of people are reluctant to to use the term secondary partner because right. they immediately recognize that oh that places this person as second and that may not feel good to them. Well, how do you think primary partner makes them feel? You right. know? Yeah, I, I think the hope there is that people hear primary as you're extra special and then they just won't bring it up with all their other partners, which is not super consensual in some respects. Right, right. It's like you got to think about the ripple effects. You got to think about yes, primary partner may feel really may feel really good to the person that gets that label, but to the people right. who don't get that label, but they also feel like you know they 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 have an important role in your life. Uh, then if they don't get that label, then there's automatically like, oh, am I secondary? Am I tertiary? Where where do I land? Where's my seat at the table? Right. Not to mention, I personally think that you're getting into really dangerous territory when a third party is dictating what happens in the relationship between two other people. Right. Right. So if you have a primary partner, then there's sort of the question of like, well, are they primary because you have a hierarchy of obligation? Like you literally have kids or a shared mortgage or something with a person. Cause that makes sense. Like if someone is the parent of your, of your offspring, yeah, you've got a hierarchy of obligation perhaps. Or is it this nefarious hierarchy of control where they can just say, oh, you're never seeing this person again. And that person doesn't even get the closure of a like, I'm, I'm sorry, but this has to end kind of conversation. Like for some people, it's like you never message them again, cold Turkey. And it's like, how ethical is that? Like, that's really dubious and questionable to me because, you know, you're taking someone's heart who may have legitimately cared about a person and just like not even giving them the closure of a proper goodbye. Yeah, I once met someone who, um, let me back up. It's not fair for me to tell their story, so I won't. But I will, fair say, enough. I will say that um, I've seen the fallout of some of those vetoes. Oof, yeah. You know, and, and, it's, and it's rough. And, it's, and, and I, I genuinely think that no one should have to experience that on any side of it, whether you're the person that is making the veto, whether you're the person that was blindsided by the veto, whether you're the person that feels like, okay, well, this isn't really what I want to do, but this partner says that I have to, so here I am, and now right. I'll be missing this person. You know, And that's I don't feel that that's fair to anyone involved. Yeah, it's, it is a weird power hierarchy. And the funny thing is, just like with how folks in traditional marriages may never give pause to think about them as a form of exchanging ownership or as a form of owner property relationship. Folks that are in primary, secondary power hierarchies may never think of what they're doing as a form of dominance and submission, but it absolutely is a form of power exchange. So whether you want to think of that as DS, MS, owner property, whatever it is, you are doing when you take out one of those veto agreements, you are doing intense 
edge play. You are doing power exchange. And if you don't have a lot of education in how to do power exchange consensually and ethically, for the love of God, get in touch with your local kink community and go do some edgy kink. Like go do the education, meet some kinksters, you know, like join a group that does power exchange, like mast. Talk about this stuff because you can't be jumping into power exchange and practice. I mean, you can, and obviously you do, but you may back yourself into some very unethical corners practicing power exchange with no forethought or education in it. True. Very true. Yeah. But some folks say I overthink things. (laughs) (laughs) I just don't want to hurt anyone. I'd rather overthink than underthink in some cases. Yeah. That's how I feel. So I'm curious about other sort of monogamous hangups um, that you maybe had to unlearn or had to practice unlearning. Or we can even back up from that. Um, you'd mentioned you wanted to talk about a story about your first um, Don't Ask, Don't Tell brand of non-monogamy. Yes. How you, um, got, how you got into polyamory. So my, I love my parents and I love their, their story of how they, they came to be because they, they met in December and the following November, they were married. And they stayed together for 50 plus years until death did them part. I remember when they were somewhere around like, you know, the 43 year mark, I remember asking my mom, okay, mom, what's the secret? How do you stay together all these years? Mm-hmm. And she said to me, she said, when we got married, I set your father down and I told him you could do what you want to out in the streets, but don't bring that shit home. And... I, it took me a while to process that, but, you know, cause I was like, oh, I guess you all aren't as monogamous as I assumed. Cause they never told me, they never used the word monogamous. They just, mm-hmm. it's an assumption that I made because I just saw them together all the time. Mm-hmm. It took me a while to process that. And then I remember coming back and asking her if, um, if she found it difficult to navigate that. And she was talking about how, well, you know, if you if you have a desire or a feeling, you go do a thing, but you don't have to stay gone three days to do that shit. You just go, you do your thing, and you come back home. Mm-hmm. And so that all of that landed on me like this certain brand of don't ask, don't tell, non-monogamy. Mm-hmm. You know, where they didn't seem to be carrying on like active open relationships or anything like that. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it was like, hey, as long as you know that we're here trying to build something together with this house and these kids uh, and you come back to that and you're not like carrying on like a secret family family or any of that business, then cool, do what you got to do. And, mm. and she also seemed to embrace that for herself as well uh, with friends that she had, you know, and, and I'm just, I'm using air quotes with friends. Yeah. Neat. Um, so touching back on monogamous hangups, um, you mentioned that you had to unlearn some monogamous hangups transitioning from that sort of serial monogamy where you still have lots of relationships, but unlike in non-monogamy, they all have to be separated in time. Yeah, a big, a big hangup that I am still unlearning, uh, because we're talking about, you know, decades of conditioning. Yep. Um, is the... The concept of the one. Mm. And, and it's this thing where even in polyamory, currently I'm really lucky to be 
dating these three fantastic women that are all brilliant in very different ways. Every now and again, there's this voice that will creep into my head that is trying to, you know, sort of, sort of decide, mm-hmm. right? And, and then I'll, I'll shut it down and just say, we don't have to do that. We don't have to rank or, you know, think about who among them is the one or anything like that, because mm-hmm. I don't, I don't believe in thinking of human beings as one being better than another. Right. You know, it, instead it's like, okay, they're different and I need to respect and appreciate their differences, celebrate their differences, um, but not rank their differences. Right. And, and that's something that I truly have to, uh, I'm still in the process of unlearning from monogamy because in, in monogamous culture, everything is like, Hey, you got to choose the right one because right. you all are going to get married and, and go up, up this relationship escalator into marriage, family, whatever, and turn it into a thing. So if you choose the wrong one, you'll spend the rest of your days wondering what could have happened with person B, you know? And right. the truth of the matter is, is that I don't have to think about any of that shit. I don't have to choose or reduce or rank or any of that. I can just celebrate mm-hmm. all of their differences and celebrate all of our differences that come up when we are together, you know, as, as pairings. And, mm-hmm. um, and every time I remember that my shoulders relax a little bit, I'm like, Oh, I don't have to like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to create stress where there is none. Yeah. I like that. So um, tell me a little bit more about the relationship escalator, just for folks who aren't familiar with that term. It's that thing where, to give an example in monogamous culture, it is we have dated, we have had, you know, sex a number of times. Uh, and I, hey, you know, I'd have a problem if you did this with anyone else. It was like, oh, well, I'm not doing it with, any, with anyone else. All right, well, I guess we're a couple now. And <laughs> Right. And that tends to happen. That's happened to me a number of times back when I was, you know, practicing that. And um, there's this a relationship escalator is basically an assumption of the next step. Mm-hmm. And and this is something that even in polyamory, I've made this mistake of of doing this with people that that I was fond of. It's like, hey, I really like this person, and I'm going to assume that because they're telling me the same thing about how much they like me that our next step is assumed that we are now going to enter into relationship agreements and partnership and so on and so forth. But what that assumption does is it creates this undue pressure on the people involved that we have to take this next step when actually, no, we don't have to do shit. Right. If if we like dating each other, we can just keep dating each other and that's fine. It doesn't have to go into this next step of partnership or go into this next step of marriage or go into this next step of living together. It doesn't have to do anything. Absolutely. It's, it's incredible to me how mind blowing that concept is to like a lot of default culture folks that I talk to. Um, you know, sometimes I'll have like a coworker or something mentioned like, you know, I really enjoyed dating. Like it's, it's so nice in the beginning when you can just, you know, get dressed up, you go to a nice place, you like share a meal, you have wine. And then like all of that changes at a certain point. And it's like, oh, but it really doesn't have to. Right. If you still find that person, if if the same things that attracted you to the idea of dating this person and doing those things 
still attract you to that person. And so long as it's not a financial burden, or maybe you need to reevaluate the places you're going to, um, how, how can you keep that alive? Like maybe, maybe you only want to do that. Maybe you never want to proceed to, to sex or living together or kids or anything like that. Like maybe you just really like having dinner with this person because they're really fascinating and intellectual and you get on super well with them. So do that. Like that's the nice thing about relationship anarchy or different forms of non-monogamy is you can have relationships stay in the sweet spots where they're really functional for, for everyone. And it's also important to, you know, again, have those conversations with the other person, the check-ins where mm-hmm. you make sure you're on the same page because another dangerous thing that may happen is one person may be on a relationship escalator and the other person is trying to walk around the mall, you know? So it's like, you're just, you're not moving at the same angle. So one of you is assuming, oh, well, we've been seeing each other for this and doing these things together for this amount of time. so... I'm just going to refer to you as my partner. I'm going to think of you as that. Yeah, but you didn't talk to me about that. Right. And they have these default assumptions like, oh, but what else would X, Y, and Z mean? And it's like, well, they could actually mean a lot of things. Maybe they don't mean what you think they mean. That's why we need to have a conversation about them. Right, exactly. Yeah, but people will make those assumptions. So what sort of... I'm curious to hear more other than agency and autonomy, like what sorts of values are really important to you in relationships? Uh, Definitely communication, communication. And, um, and here's the key proactive communication. This is something that I'm sure you've heard me talk about this uh, Mm -hmm. and I will keep on talking about it because (laughs) while we can't, the idea behind proactive communication for me is not that we are going to, foresee a problem and talk about it before it's a problem because that's, you know, that's, I feel like that's, you know, sort of predicting the outcome of a game, you know, it's like gambling. Uh, however, proactive communication is like, Hey, you know what? Um, you just brought up a subject. Let's talk about that subject. Let's dive a little bit deeper into that, see our feelings around it before that subject that you brought up turns into a fight later on. Right. Yep. So, yep. Hey, you, I, I heard you mention something about uh, let, let's and, and this I know that this is a really hot button topic, but I heard you mention something about abortion. Maybe we should have a conversation on your feelings around that today instead of <laughs> waiting until right instead we need to have until, that conversation. A conversation that we need to have, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah, getting getting square with like possible outcomes and how you're going to handle them. Like, um, I often talk about this as like preemptive damage control. Like, what would it look like if one of us accidentally broke certain boundaries? Like, whether they're um, quote unquote cheating, um, or you know, like what would it look like if one of us accidentally sort of was unable to meet our commitment? Like, if we were late to something. Some people you can be hours late to say if you're meeting them at their house, they don't even care, won't even bat an eye. Other people, you can be hours late, and as long as you update them really close, they don't really care. Other people, you can be minutes late and have told them you're going to be five minutes late, and they'll be questioning whether or not they can trust you anymore um, because, you know, you've been five minutes late every time that you've met them kind of thing. Right, right. Uh, 
Yeah, and it, it's important to add the caveat when it comes to proactive communication that we don't allow ourselves to to sort of uh, devolve into hypothetical arguments. Yep. Uh, you know, and and what and the way to prevent that, I think, is to just respect where the other person is when you start having this proactive communication. Uh, to take it back to high school, for me, I remember the first time I experienced a hypothetical argument where we were having a conversation, and it was a conversation about uh, it was about pregnancy, and we we're like, you know, we we're like juniors in high school at this time, and mm-hmm. so I didn't know, you know, it was like the question was, what would you do if, and I didn't know, and because I didn't know, and I felt pressured to have a yes or no answer in the moment. Uh, you know, it, it ended up turning into a fight and, hmm. and I was like, yeah, but I don't, I don't know. And that's that it would have been nice if in that moment, my partner heard me and respected, okay, this is where he is right now. He doesn't know. So we table it for a mm-hmm. as opposed to pressing, pressing, pressing. And then I popped out a yes or no. And then it turned into an argument. I'm like, but I still don't know though. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So how has, I'm curious how polyamory has changed your relationship with yourself. I, I got to be honest, I don't know that it has. And the reason I say that is because I have always practiced polyamory before I knew what it was. So it, it wasn't until maybe 2014 that I actually heard the term and, and heard the term in the context of someone said to me, I practice polyamory. And I was like, what are mm-hmm. you saying to me? <laughs> so, right. but before that, you know, I, I had this rather ham-fisted approach to polyamory because I just thought, okay, as long as I'm being open and honest with the people, then there's no problem, right? And so the my favorite, <laughs> my favorite story is when I had gone on a few dates with this woman. We had gone out maybe three, four times, and we both were in agreement that it just wasn't working out when we should stop. Mm-hmm. And so we were having this conversation on, on the phone. And once we came to that agreement that we should stop, I, uh, I asked if her roommate was home and if she could put her roommate on the phone. <laughs> you, you know where this is going. And so <laughs> I, I asked her roommate out. And her roommate said no. And both of them were kind of like, dude, what the fuck? And, and I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, there, I think to myself at the time, and mind you, this was like, I'd say this is like probably 2000, 2001. I remember thinking to myself, yeah, there's absolutely nothing wrong with what I'm doing because I'm being above board. Right. And they didn't see it that way. And so, so, you know, to answer your question about how, polyamory has changed my relationship with myself. I've always had the same relationship with myself in that, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm driven by this desire to be open and honest with people first and foremost. And so that hasn't changed. The only thing that's changed is my, my tools around how I communicate, when I communicate and with whom I communicate. Mm-hmm. So I was going to ask how polyamory has affected your communication in relationships, but it sounds like all super positive, all being very transparent. Did you find that that sort of approach of 
this is all fine because it's above board changed very much when you first heard the term polyamory? Uh, it, it did. And um, like the, the style of communication changed. Um, the How can I put this? Um, the first thing that I did was I educated myself on polyamory by going to the Center for Sex and Culture in San Francisco was having these monthly um, open relationship discussion groups. Mm. And so I was able to attend these by myself and just listen to all of these couples and their their experiences. You know, people had been practicing polyamory for anywhere from two weeks to 25 years and listening to all of their stories and their mistakes, really. Uh, and, and when I say mistakes, I don't mean my judgments that they made mistakes. I mean, by mm-hmm. their own words, they're like, hey, here's a mistake that you made and here's how we recover. Mm-hmm. Listening to all of that was school. It was school for me. And so that that education did a great job of, you know, uh, uh, helping me when it came to, you know, communicating with, with others in, in polyamorous relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, I found myself going to a lot of communication workshops and being pointed to specific books that I should read on communication and things like that. And, and I think mm-hmm. that that's not only been beneficial to my relationships, but something that is hard for a lot of people to understand is that I felt like I could not be honest in monogamous relationships. And what I mean by that was I often felt penalized for my honesty. So I'm the type of person, if someone's like, hey, you want to have sex with my sister? Then I will say, I'll say yes. And that's not to mean that I'm going to now plot on some way to coerce your sister. But what that right. does mean is that I'm just answering your question honestly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I say penalized for honesty, I mean, like, I can remember being in a monogamous relationship on a beach and commenting on how I found the, the person in front of us attractive. And then hearing about that for three months after the fact. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wh- and, and it was always in, in an argumentative sort of like, why don't you just go find that woman on the beach? And I'm like, whoa, whoa. This, <laughs> this, feels, this feels like really, it feels punitive. It feels like I'm being punished for, for telling you honestly How that I, I found that person attractive. I wasn't, I wasn't being ridiculous or over the top or anything like, oh, I want to like, make a life with this person and I'm in love. It wasn't anything like that. It was just like, yes, that person is attractive. That was it. And, and so I genuinely felt like, okay, I cannot be honest with you. If me saying that causes us to be fighting about it 90 days after the fact. Yeah. And, and so that's what I mean when I say, um, monogamy kept me from feeling it. And a lot of people, when I tell that story, people are like, Oh, well, that's not all of monogamy. I'm like, okay, you're right. You're absolutely right. But if I have an intimate relationship with a coworker, and I mean intimate in the, you know, quote unquote work wife sense. Uh, like you know, emotional intimacy, but not sexual. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's like we, we have this bond because we work together, but that's kind of where it stops. Mm-hmm. 
if my romantic partner that I live with is threatened by that, mm-hmm. then I feel like I can't tell them about that. Right. And, and it's like, I don't know what to do to help you not feel threatened by that other than to really reiterate the fact that it's just a work thing. But yeah, stuff like, you know, feeling like if I have any platonic friends that are like cisgender heterosexual women, then I feel like if I feel like I can't have that relationship just because of my monogamous relationship, then mm-hmm. I don't feel like I can be honest. And and that was the thing about monogamy that that I, I pulled away from. It was like, yeah, I don't feel like I can be honest. So no, I'm good. Yeah, there are folks in monogamy that literally talk about emotional affairs when you have an emotionally engaged um, friendship or or work relationship that's strictly professional, but it's emotionally engaged. You trust that person. You tell that person things about yourself. If that in any way threatens the intimacy or supremacy of the quote unquote primary that that's termed by some monogamous folks to be an emotional affair. Yeah. And that's bananas to me. That's like, yeah, like telling, that's like telling my, let's say I have a teenage child and I'm telling them, Hey, you know what? You have a friend that, that, that you spend a lot of time with your, you know, your buddy, your best friend in high school, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, so make sure that you don't create any emotional bonds with anyone else. Right. Because you have this one emotional bond here. What? That's bananas. What is that? Like whenever, whenever folks talk about in relationships in like almost any other context, the idea that you have multiple friendships and a partner says, no, you have to choose. You have to choose me first. I want you to start getting rid of these friends or I want you to be less intimate with these friends. In almost any other context, we would call that abusive. But in the monogamous context, it's like, oh, there's a gray area and oh, they just want to feel really special. And I'm like, can't they feel really special without taking your, your social life from you? That just feels dangerous. Like social yeah. networks are so important. Yeah. And that, that's kind of a, that I remember even when I was a serial monogamous, that was kind of a deal breaker for me. If I was dating someone that didn't have their own set of friends. Right. I'm like, you, I feel like you should have your own life you know, your own friends, your own hobbies, your own whatever. And I'm happy to, you know, join you in any of those if you invite me, but I'm mm-hmm. going to put myself in, in those or, you know, or sort of shoehorn myself in there either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it gets complicated when you start having uh, smaller and smaller niche communities and then you all end up with the same set of friends mm-hmm. and then conflict resolution becomes very important. Yeah, that's that's something else that happens in... in monogamy culture and again i want to i want to be clear i'm not beating up on monogamy culture it's just there are a lot of things that that happen as a part of monogamy culture that are just frankly shitty okay and and it's not that's not to say monogamy at large is bad or anything like that it's a relationship choice and whatever works for the individuals involved i encourage it i really do yeah totally when um you know when when there's this talk of okay, we've broken up, so now that means that we can no longer, like, share friends and things like that. So, like, right. the friends that – and a lot of times there's the, story, there's the story of I had this friend before we, made, we met, but now at, as we've gone through this divorce or breakup or what have you, now friends have to choose a side? That is ridiculous to me. It's like we're yep. adults. Yep. 
Yep, I, I couldn't agree more than I do. I, I don't really understand that. It's like, ah, yeah, there, there are going to be relationships and relationships are often going to end regardless whether they're monogamous or otherwise. We got to choose our own standards for success. We got to choose our own criteria for what makes a relationship quote unquote worth it, quote unquote, serve us. To what extent is it harming us? To what extent is it making us better, leading us to our best life or our best our d- discovery of our best self? Like, how is that relationship functioning for the people involved? And I think in, in so many communities, we import all this really strongly monogamous stuff, which is just that it's so against the idea of people breaking up that when they break up, it must mean that one of those people was so horrible because why else would you end a relationship? And it's like, there are loads of reasons to end a relationship and they're okay. And it's okay to end a relationship if one or both people need it or all people need it. If it's not just a couple. Yeah. I have nothing, nothing negative to say about any of my exes because no Mm -hmm. matter what we experienced in that moment in time, uh, it really boiled down to, we were not compatible. That's it. Not that they were bad or I was bad or, you know, or anyone has like lion's share of the blame or, or even that it's 50, 50, it doesn't mean any of that. It just means that we weren't compatible and that's, a, yep. and it maybe we weren't compatible because of our personalities, maybe because of the, where we were in our life in that moment in time, because me in 2015 versus me in 2010, I'm very different people. You know what I mean? And so, yep. um, you know, you, you hear these stories where someone is like reaching out to their ex and like apologizing. They're like, uh, hey, I'm sorry for what I did to you. Or some people are like, I'm sorry because I was a very different person then. And I see how <clears throat> that I may have done some harm and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to I want to circle back to the relationship escalator and talk about um, why. I am no longer, why I no longer practice it, um, why I'm no longer on it. Um, something that I realized for me, and this goes back to my parents' love story, because I grew up with these two loving, like sweet to each other parents, I just kind of assumed that that would be my path, that that would be my story, mm-hmm. you know? That, oh, well, of course, I'm going to meet someone, fall in love, and we'll be married for decades, just like that. And, <laughs> and while, that's, while that's not necessarily a bad desire to have for yourself, I, I, it took my father's passing for me to realize that that's not my story. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's no logical reason for me to assume or expect that to be my story. Mm-hmm. And, and once I realized that, I let it go. And I let go of that, you know, desi- that desire to find the one or any of that bullshit. <clears throat> and, and in doing so, the first thing that I noticed was it completely changed, or let me, let me back up. It increased infinitely increased my spectrum of who I found attractive. Hmm. And, and, and what I mean by that is when we, we had a conversation before about preferences 
you know, what, what people call preferences, but usually it boils down to racial fetishization or, or some sort of fetishization or some desire to belong to a social group. So we want this attractive person on our arm, right? And, and people want to call it preference. <clears throat> but um, when I stopped looking for this ideal mate or the one or any of that nonsense, then I stopped caring about that shit. And it was all of this was happening subconsciously, so I knew I was going through a change, but I couldn't quite name it as it happened. Mm-hmm. And so, um, that idea of there, there's so many because I see people as people and not as potential partners. Mm-hmm. Then I find myself attracted to so many more people now. Definitely. All of a sudden they don't need to meet all these criteria from A through Z. You're just like, hey, what if we just met each other where we're at and experienced each other as people and we weren't concerned about whether or not we want to have kids together or a white picket fence? Even if I want those things, they don't have to be with this person. And because I'm non-monogamous, I'm not quote unquote wasting my time by loving and experiencing new people. I'm increasing my pool of experience of people. If anything, I'm spending my time well in that I'm getting to understand who I am on my own, but also in relationship to other people and how different other people can be from me. And all of that experience, it's like a sort of cross training. It helps you, I think, select a person that is more compatible with you in the things that you do want out of a relationship. Yeah. But yeah, that's why I'm not on the relationship escalator anymore is because I don't, I'm not thinking about next steps with anyone. Mm-hmm. I'm not thinking about, oh, I am so fond of this person. Obviously, the next step is partnership. No, right. I'm not thinking that at all. And, um, and I feel like, I feel like a lot, I would have had a lot more. And this is, I, I'm not a big, I'm not big into regret or any shit like that. But we all stop and think, oh, if I knew then what I know now. And this Definitely. is one of those moments where I stop and think, you know, five, six years ago, if I, if I thought like this, if I knew this, I feel like I would have had a lot, a, a lot more enriching relationships, like, ri- like rich, like textured relationships that would have been about more than just me assuming the next step. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I, I haven't looked back in that way. I, I either ever or in a very long time, but hearing you say like, I'm not the kind of person that would look back, but looking back, I'm like, yeah, looking back the number of times I was in a monogamous relationship is actually pretty, not that many, but one of them was four and a half years. And that was during university. And there were just like all of these very interesting to me humans at that time that were all exploring their sexualities and exploring people and i was very interested in doing all those things but i didn't need to worry about that because i was in a monogamous relationship and like looking back maybe if i'd had more relationships in university they would have been just as incompatible and they would have been just as fraught with all kinds of mistakes but there would have been many 
attempts with lots of different kinds of mistakes that gradually improved and got better and better. Whereas I found in one relationship, yeah, I improved on some things, but the biggest growth from that relationship came when that relationship ended. And I had to sort of confront like all these hard truths about why we were incompatible. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the hard truths are also, I, I think you, you use the, the phrase wasting time and you put quotes around it. And I appreciate that. Because, mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe that there is any such thing as wasting time. If there was a lesson learned mm-hmm. now, if time was spent, but no lesson was learned, and and you want to call something a waste of time, I think it's important to face the hard truth of, I'm going to call it a waste of time because I didn't learn anything, and I'm probably going to you know do that same behavior over again. <laughs> but but yeah. I don't think anyone is willing to like say that out loud, like, it's a waste of time because I didn't learn anything and I'll do it over again. <laughs> and I'm going to fall into the exact same problematic behaviors, yeah. Right. Um, I think about Icelandic singer um, Emiliana Torini. Um, she has this lyric that's like, um, it's something about saying that that one of her lovers is making this point that they like wasted time together. And she's like, but, you know, in truth, we just used it all up. It's and like there was a the time. Like the, yeah, all the time they were going to have together, all the time they were ever going to have together was that time. And in the end, they just used up like almost their their tolerance of the ways they were incompatible and like their curiosity to keep trying and and finding out more. And they got to a point where they had used up all the time they were ever going to spend together. And it's not about wasting that time out of their lives, just about using it all. Yeah. Something that I've I've been in a lot of, and this especially happened during my serial monogamy. I've been in a, a lot of the, um, burn bright, burn hot relationships where there's like NRE from day one and mm-hmm. everything is like really intense and passionate and just move and just moving at a strong clip on that relationship escalator. And then, mm-hmm. um, and then they burn out like after three months, you know, you go from calling and talking every day to just not talking at all. And, mm-hmm. and I experienced enough of those to now every time that I'm, I'm dating someone, I'm very, I'm, I'm acutely aware that at any given time, this could go from hot to cold. And because right. of that, I feel like that has made me more affectionate over the years where now I'm like, I don't think of wasted time, but I do think when things were good, I feel like I should have kissed you more. Oh uh, yeah. I know that feeling. Yeah. And so, and so now like when I'm dating someone, I'm super affectionate because I'm like, shit can go from hot to cold you know, pandemic could kick in tomorrow. And then all of a sudden we're stuck in the house, <laughs> all sorts of stuff, you know? So I'm going to, I'm going to give you this affection now. Yeah. That's, that's something I've learned too, from having multiple relationships is that idea that like, you may really deeply care about someone and you may be deeply incompatible. And there may come a day when that person, it's not, they won't talk with you, but they just don't want to. And you know that. And so the two of you just don't really talk anymore. And you're just like, you know, there were things I really, really liked about that relationship when I was in it. 
And I'm never going to stop liking it from that perspective. It's like, I think back and like, I remember who I was then and why it was, why it served me so much, why it served us so much. And to look at it from the present date is like, yeah, obviously that would like, that was a monogamous thing. Like that would, that would never work for me now. But at the time, did it serve me? I remember being genuinely happy. Yeah. Yeah. In the end, I just used it all up. Hmm. Well, I feel, I feel like this is complete for me. How are you feeling about the conversation? Uh, I'm feeling good, but I do want to touch on one last thing. Um, yeah, go for it. I never realized how much of an extrovert I was until uh, shelter in place and not being able to be around groups of people and not being able to smell and touch and kiss my lovers. Um, mm. it, you know, to initially I found myself resenting zoom and, and Skype and all of these mediums because it felt like a shitty consolation prize. Mm -hmm. I was like, but, but they're like barely two miles away from me. You know, and um, mm -hmm. so when I talk to people about how I'm dealing day by day, sure, there's other fallout that comes along with this pandemic, but I feel like if my basic human need for touch were met, then I could handle all the other shit. Mm -hmm. That's all I got. Awesome. Yeah, I'm sure we could go on and on about COVID and being extroverts inside, trying to f trying to f navigate some form of connection supplement, <laughs> if you will. Yeah. Yeah, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. And it's super neat that people are swiping left and right a lot more because they're inside and they're not feeling connection and they're turning to like dating apps to try and feel that thrill of connection. It's going to be really interesting to see how relationships go during the COVID pandemic and how many of them continue and still feel good for folks afterwards. Yeah, I remember hearing some statistic about the number of people, and I don't remember, maybe it was in China, maybe it was somewhere where they've, they've ended the, shut, the shutdown and people are able to go back out now. And, um, and I remember hearing some statistic about 50% of married couples file for divorce afterwards. Wow. Because they were tired of just being, I mean, it's like you put a, you put things under a microscope. You don't always like the result, you know? That's very true. I'm extremely fortunate in that I, I happen to currently be in, I, I'm practicing a relationship that strangely looks similarly like monogamy. It's sort of like one of those monogamy passing relationships just because neither of us happen to be dating someone else right now. But I'm sure, I'm sure I will in future. Um, and I'm have no comment on whether my partner chooses to, but obviously it's something I would encourage. Um, if that was right for my partner, because <laughs> I wouldn't encourage them if they didn't want another relationship. Um, but you know, folks have got to do what's right for them. And I'm very, very lucky. I'm sitting at home recording this podcast and I have a partner that is spending half of their time at their place alone. They don't really interact with tons of other folks. Um, and then spending half of their time with me in my space. 
And it's like, we have just agreed that if like between my roommate, my partner and myself, that like, we're good with the risk involved for the three of us, considering he's currently not employed. Um, I only work with one other person and it's sort of like, we're really able to understand and control sort of the risk factors. And because we all have an education in kink, it's like, okay, well, what's the real risk here? And like, how significant of a risk is it? And are we willing to, to do this thing that is slightly edgier than perhaps is advisable? And I'm not talking about going out and having a party in the park or anything crazy like that. Like, I, I mean, literally just some folks are living in households where they contact this many people as it is. And I can, I can track how many people I expose myself to, um, by which I mean in the COVID sense, not in the flashing sense. <laughs> right, right. And I feel like I feel like they can as well. And we're all risk informed and consenting to this. And it's like, yeah. And if it ever gets to the place where it's like one of us is directed to quarantine for 14 days, we're going to obviously obey that quarantine. However, um, we haven't been like we haven't been directed to quarantine except for me once for 14 days, which I obeyed. So. Yeah, so it is what it is. It is what it is. But yeah, however folks are finding that that sense of connection, yeah, I just I just wish folks all the best. I hope they are able to get their needs for connection met. Um, I hope that you are able to get your needs for connection met one way or another. But it, it is a challenge for a lot of folks, especially extroverts, especially like people whose love languages like really start powerfully from a place of like that kinesthetic engagement, like touch and having that sense of closeness with folks. So my heart goes out to you, friend. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, thank you again for being on the podcast. I really appreciate touching base with you. Thanks for having me, Victor. So how was it, Intimates? Did you love something you heard? Or maybe you're upset by something I said? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions, or you can go to patreon.com slash Victor Salmon, where you can find our Discord server. All of these communities are available on intimatepodcast.com, and I genuinely look forward to speaking with you soon. If you liked it, please consider helping us pay for show costs over at Patreon for as little as $1 per month. It's incredibly helpful. It's just a dollar a month. If you can afford it, we would hugely appreciate having your support. And hey, if that doesn't work for you, I completely understand. You can also help out by going to leave a review on iTunes or other favorite social media platform. Social proof like that helps so much with visibility and audience building. It helps other intimacy and relationship nerds find us. And if any of that just sounds like too much work, you can always do something really simple and it still goes a long way. Something like just tapping share and sending an episode that you liked, maybe a favorite, to a friend or partner, or maybe you can send them something you think they might really like. That's probably more considerate. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time and for your help in keeping us making more of Intimate Interactions. Oh yeah, I almost forgot. The intro music was Driving in the Rain by Timecrawler, and this outro music is Acoustic Blues by Jason Shaw.